Well, the Apostle Paul has made it clear that we are of both the spirit and the flesh, and that our spiritual and fleshly natures are constantly struggling. As we noted last week, it's as if we have two dogs, or as Indians actually tell it, wolves, fighting within us, and the one we feed the most wins. Now, that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's easy to visualize, but if it's an eternal, internal struggle, how do we know who's actually winning? How do we know what's going on inside? What's the evidence? Which dog we're feeding the most? I think we look to the outside to get the evidence. We look for external signs of what's going on within. And Paul doesn't leave us guessing as to how to read the signs. He clearly labels them deeds of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. And he gives us specific examples of each. He begins with the deeds of the flesh, listing for us some that he said should be evident to everyone. We're in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. While these deeds of the flesh are probably evident to most of us, we may not fully understand the words used to list them. So let's briefly define each and make sure we do understand what they mean. Paul begins with immorality. The word he used is pornea, from which we get the word pornography. It originally meant intercourse with a prostitute, but came to mean any illicit sexual relationship. When used in conjunction with adultery, it's usually translated fornication and refers specifically to premarital sexual activity. Now, Barclay notes that this was a new virtue that Christianity brought into Roman culture. Unless sexual activity involved another man's wife, they seldom thought of sex as a moral issue. They simply thought of it as a pleasurable activity. And sad to say, that seems to be the prevailing attitude towards sex today. Seldom is premarital sex thought of as sin, let alone the sin of fornication. No, cohabiting and sexually active couples are usually surprised when I read them, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, 
and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. What society views as acceptable and even as a welcomed expression of love, God views as a sinful deed of the flesh. The next word is impurity. It originally referred to an infected wound, but it came to speak of someone who was unclean, with a primary emphasis on the moral character of a person. It refers to filthiness of heart and mind, of someone whose mind is in the gutter, always looking for and finding something unclean, something dirty in everything. Sensuality. The King James Version uses the word lasciviousness. It originally denoted excess, the lack of restraint, a a runaway passion for pleasure. The prominent idea is shameless conduct. It pictures someone who dresses or behaves in a way to attract and promote a sexual response. Or someone who just openly fulfills his fleshly lusts. Now, these three deeds of the flesh are usually grouped together and categorized as sexual sins. Now, again, that's not to suggest that sex itself is a deed of the flesh. Sexual expression within the confines of marriage can be a very spiritual thing. But when distorted by sin, it does become a deed of the flesh. The next two deeds of the flesh originally expressed themselves in pagan worship. Idolatry speaks of service to idols, to false gods. It's the worship of anything men make into a god. One commentator put it this way. It's a work of the flesh in which we create gods in our own image according to our desires, constructing our theology to rationalize and justify the way we want to live. Sorcery, pharmakia, is obviously a word from which we get pharmacy. It denotes the use of drugs in a cultic manner, generally accompanied by incantations or appeals to occult powers. The use of drugs to enhance or stimulate a religious experience. Eventually, it came to refer to any form of witchcraft or any attempt to control or compel spiritual powers into doing your bidding. Then we come to eight deeds of the flesh that are often grouped together as social sins, deeds of the flesh that negatively affect relationships with others. Begins with enmities, comes from a word for enemy. It describes general hatred for others. It characterizes a person who is usually hostile to others. It's the opposite of love. Strife originally had to do with rivalry for a prize. It pictures a competitive spirit that leads to contention and quarreling, an extremely competitive nature that needs to outdo everyone else. The word translated jealousy is actually zealous, from which we get the word zeal. The King James uses the word 
emulation is a strange word, but to emulate someone is to want to equal or surpass them. It's excessive zeal to have something that leads to resentment toward those who do have what it is you want. Outburst of anger is a good way to translate the word thumos. It's explosive anger, the uncontrollable expression of a hot temper. It's losing control. It's blowing up. It's usually short-lived. It's not long-standing anger, but it's still very damaging and is a deed of the flesh. Disputes. Originally referred to the work of a hired man, then to getting others to do something for you. It came to refer to canvassing for political office and what results from it. Arguments that come from self-seeking ambition, putting someone else down so you'll look good and gain a following. Dissensions literally means standing apart, to cut yourself off from others for the wrong reasons, from people with whom you should be standing. Factions actually comes from the word we generally translate heresies. The root means simply to choose. It came to mean what was chosen, an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion that led to division and the formation of sects and cliques. It's a grouping of people together who share your opinion so you can stand against another group. Factions are divisions caused by heretical opinions, unbiblical doctrinal opinions. The churches are also divided by opinions that are political and medical in nature. Obviously, we are free to express our opinions, but we must not allow them to cause factions in the body of Christ. Envying is the feeling of displeasure caused by the advantage or prosperity of others. It's a very mean word. Euripides called it the greatest of all diseases among men. And the Stoics defined it as grief at someone else's good. It begrudges the fact that someone else has something without really wanting it yourself. It just doesn't want someone else to have it. It's not so much jealous as embittered. The King James slips in murders here, and murder is obviously a deed of the flesh, but it's really not in the best manuscripts. The last two focus on drinking, and the first one is simply drunkenness. The word used here is actually the plural form of strong drink. It refers to what happens when too many strong drinks are consumed. And while drinking itself is not categorized as a deed of the flesh, drunkenness is. The last deed of the flesh listed is carousing. It originally referred to a band of friends accompanying a victor for a time of celebration after the games, and it invariably included drinking, reveling, and rioting. It's group drunkenness under the guise of a celebration, something 
we often see in public festivals and celebrations. Wow, that's quite a list. And that concludes Paul's list in Galatians, but it certainly doesn't include everything that can be categorized as a deed of the flesh. And so Paul adds, and things like these. That opens it up. So don't sit back and say, well, I didn't do that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. I must be good. No. Add and things like these. Now, Paul, again, only named 15 of them here. But there are other lists of deeds of the flesh in the New Testament as well. So I think it would be good for us to expand the list this morning. You know, Jesus even created one when pointing out what defiles a man comes from within. In Mark chapter 7, he writes, And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, Deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. And Paul had additional lists as well. In Romans, he listed the activities of a depraved mind. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. When writing his first letter to Timothy, Paul gave a list when describing the kind of men who needed the constraints of the law. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And then in his second letter to Timothy, while describing conditions in the last days, Paul gave this list of deeds of the flesh. Realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, 
revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. I'm sure we could add a few more, but I think you get the idea. These things are not of the Spirit. It's obvious they are deeds of the flesh. And if they can be seen in our life, they expose the dominance of the black dog within. So Paul concludes with a strong warning. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this wasn't anything new to the Galatians. Paul had warned them about these things before, no doubt when sharing the gospel with them. You see, good preaching is not all good news. It's also bad news, and today is a bad news day, okay? But if we don't understand the bad news, the good news will mean nothing to us. If we never never hear the horrors of sin, if we never expose the consequences of sin, the promise of forgiveness is meaningless. We've got to understand the bad news before the good news means anything to us. And if we aren't given adequate warnings we will probably receive some really bad news on Judgment Day. The warning here is that those who practice the things he has just listed will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news is that he used the word practice. He's not suggesting that if we have a sensual thought or a moment of jealousy or get caught up in a dispute that we'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Graciously and gratefully, our salvation is not that fragile. He's not warning us about the danger of isolated lapses and failures. What he's warning us about is the regular practice of such things, a pattern of life. If our life is characterized by such things, it demonstrates who's in control, which dog we're feeding. God's kingdom is one of godliness and righteousness and things of the spirit. It's not characterized by deeds of the flesh. So if our life is characterized by deeds of the flesh, we demonstrate that we are not of the kingdom of God. Now it's true, we can never earn entrance into the kingdom of God by what we do. 
But what we do does reveal whether or not we will inherit it. And that's not to say, if it's obvious we're losing most of the battles on the spiritual front, that we're without hope. Anyone can be washed and justified through Christ. Even those who have let the black dog take over again. When writing to the Corinthians, Paul said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. That's an amazing passage of Scripture. Amazing passage of Scripture. It doesn't minimize sin. It doesn't reframe it. It doesn't call it something that's socially acceptable. It calls it out for what it is. It's harsh. But then he says, and such were some of you. He's talking to the Christians. He's talking to the believers, those who had come to Christ. And such were some of you. And then what if, after coming to Christ, you mess up? And you slip back into some of those old practices that were habituated in your life. What then? Well, John, writing to Christians in 1 John, his first little letter, says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean we have to come and have a big confessional service. It simply means you need to acknowledge before God that you failed, that you've been feeding the wrong dog. You've allowed yourself to, to be overcome by fleshly, thoughts and desires and relationships. And you repent of it. You say, God, that's not, that's not the way those who are part of the kingdom of God behave. That is not a reflection of the spirit of God within me. I'm sorry. I repent. I change. I reclaim the victory made possible through Christ. And with the power of your spirit, I'll begin feeding that spiritual nature you've given me. I'll take the Spirit of God out of that corner that I've shoved him into my heart, and I'll give him control. I'll start being what you've called me to be. Now, if we'll acknowledge the fact we've been feeding the wrong dog and start feeding the right dog, we can be forgiven. We can be cleansed, 
and we can be empowered to walk in the Spirit once again. What an amazing, gracious, loving God we have. Don't let anyone convince you that Christianity is just against everything. It's not. It acknowledges sin. It acknowledges how sin destroys lives and relationships. It acknowledges what sin has done to the world in which we live and the pain that we experience, the tears we shed, the death that's all around us. Christianity acknowledges that honestly and openly. But then it gives us good news. Christ came. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. He will cleanse us. He will wash us. He will fill us with his spirit and enable us to have the kind of life we've longed for. Life that is evidenced by fruit of the Spirit, something we'll look at next week. So don't end with the deeds of the flesh. The second half's coming next week. But we understand it's available because of the forgiveness of Christ. Anyone, anyone who will acknowledge their sin can be washed and made clean. There's no deed of the flesh that's so bad that you're lost without hope. If you come to Christ, you'll be forgiven. He can wash you. And he can wash you again and again and again if needed. It's not a one and done thing, not in this life. But he'll wash you make you clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let's sing that together.